0: ta women's success china is powered by the Seneca network we are bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater china at the top of their professional game i'm your host juliana batista many thanks to the entire team at sup china including kaiser quo for co-producing jason mcronald for editing and jamie lue for marketing if you're a loyal listener or just happened upon us we'd love it if you could show some support by hitting subscribe. We wanna share with you some of the killer episodes we have lined up for the rest of 2019. This week we are joined by Amy Chua, probably most well known for her book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom, but there's so much more to her. Lawyer, academic, writer, mother. She acknowledges during this interview that the defining pattern of her career is that of being an outsider. Although I agree, I also think there's been this fine-tuned balance of cultural commentator from both an academic and personal point of view. We'll dig into that a bit more later on in the episode. And in the interview, she shares why she's been so committed to mentorship and also teases some of her new work, a prequel sequel to The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom, so make sure to catch that as well. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ta I am sitting here right now with Amy Chua, lawyer, academic, writer. We are so excited to have you on the show. And I think we just want to start off with what makes Amy Chua, Amy Chua? Well,
1: I think probably the most important thing to me is family. Um, that's that's like always been my number one priority, um, both my parents um, and then downstream, my my children. Career-wise, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody and I realized that In some ways, every single article and every single book I've written is in some ways about being an outsider. Um, It reflects the perspective of being an outsider and somehow trying to turn being an outsider into a source of strength. I think that's one consistent theme when I think about myself. I think we're all just like balls of contradiction. You know, I grew up a very studious, obedient kid, but I always idolize my father, and my father was a huge rebel. And somehow, I find myself in my career just like constantly being outspoken and and you know writing books that end up being controversial. Um, you know, my mom used to say, "Amy, just be moderate. You know, the loudest duck gets shot." And I just keep being the loudest duck <laughs> sometimes, to my regret.
0: You know, let's start from the beginning. You weren't an author; you were a lawyer. And, you know, what were those beginning experiences like? Did you feel like you excelled in the industry that you were in? Oh, my gosh.
1: Great question. No, it's it's interesting. I um, only applied to law school because I absolutely knew that I didn't want to go to medical school. Um, and when I started law school, I actually discovered to my horror that I was horrible at it. Um, and I actually started to panic because, you know, I'd always been a really good student. But the thing is the way that I was raised, I was always taught to, um, you know, to defer to authority, to kind of respect your teachers, respect your elders. But that's not what law school is about. So I remember when I started, professors would, you know, they would call on you in this terrifying, huge room, you know, Miss Chua, you read this case. Do you agree with it or disagree with it? And I would just like have absolutely no view. I would think, oh my God, a judge wrote it. It must be right. And meanwhile, I'd see all my classmates waving their hands with so many opinions. And that was another thing. I didn't have my own opinions about morality and politics, again, because of the way I was raised Know, my parents were scientists. I did not grow up like my, my Jewish husband grew up in a family where at dinner they discussed philosophy and debated foreign policy and economic theory and you know, in my family, we just focused on the food. We stuffed ourselves as quickly as we could. And then we went off to do homework. So it was a massive adjustment for me. And, you know, I'm really grateful to my parents for the values they instilled. I mean, it's, it's the old hard work and discipline. Um, it can help you overcome a lot. So I was not particularly a natural at the law. It was a, it was a struggle. And then when I went to start at the law firm, I, I worked on Wall Street, it was the same thing. I mean, I, you know, I can work hard and do well. I made tons of friends, um, but I was doing international securities law. And I was like, I'm bored by this. I'm not good at this. I can't even remember what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and I kind of totally lucked out. I, I kind of found my, I guess what people call, you know, my passion or, or my field or my calling totally by accident. So I had always wanted to be an academic And because my father was one, I sort of unthinkingly thought I should be a professor. But after graduating, I I clerked for Chief Judge Patricia Wald on the D.C. Circuit. She was a great role model for me and a great mentor and really important because she was kind of the opposite of my parents. My parents were like, go, 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 faster, faster, faster. The idea of taking off a year would be like, no. Um, But she was the opposite. I mean, she was like, take Time to think about who you are, who you want to be, how you can contribute to society, and very importantly, how you can contribute to the community. I mean, my parents were immigrants and it was just about survival. Um, I don't think it was their fault, but like a lot of immigrants, it was all about the family and kind of more selfish in a way. You know, they, they were struggling themselves so much they couldn't think about you know, helping the community or, or homeless people or, or poor people. Um, but my judge was a civil rights lawyer, and she really got me focused on that. Um, but she said, you cannot possibly be a professor because you do not know anything. Um, you know, you need to go do something for like four or five years, um, public interest or government or, or or private sector, and that's why I went to this law firm. Um, and what happened? How did you make that decision? I knew... Um, well, actually, like everything else, it was kind of random. Um I I uh you know, it was kind of in that case, kind of the path of least resistance. Um and as soon as I got there I, I started I thought maybe I made the wrong decision. The truth is all the four years that I was in corporate practice on Wall Street I was also thinking about applying to graduate school. I tried to write a novel, which failed. I started to write poetry, which failed even worse. Um, I thought about applying to psych grad school. So I was really lost during those years. Um, again, I it wasn't miserable. I, I was learning. I wasn't doing badly. I had lots of friends. But I just knew that I couldn't stay forever, that it really wasn't my calling.
0: Mm. It's interesting you talk about this failed novel, but... Now you have incredibly successful nonfiction books out in print. I mean, tell us when the novel failed, did you ever think you'd write something of book length after that?
1: No, I got really depressed. So it's funny, I, um, this is, you have to remember, this is like in the late 80s. So I had the idea to write this three generational epic novel about my family. And two things happened. First, Amy Tan, another Amy, beat me to it <laughs> and wrote an incredibly great book. And secondly, I had no plot. <laughs> you know, I had all these ideas and all these cool characters, but one thing I learned is you know what? To have a novel, you need a plot. So I was I was horrible at it. Um, and yeah, I ended up writing these books just through serendipity. So what happened is I, um, you know, I tried to write all these articles about stuff that I didn't, it didn't interest me. So I, I, for a long time, I tried to be a human rights lawyer. I care a lot about human rights. I just didn't have anything innovative to say. But my own family, they are a part of the Chinese minority in the Philippines. So in the Philippines, the Chinese make up like one tiny percent of the population, but are extremely economically successful. That's true in Indonesia also. So I um, have always known about this. What happened was I knew about this phenomenon that I coined this term called market-dominant minorities, and it's just about that phenomenon that I mentioned. It's, it's, it's noticing that unlike in the United States, in many developing countries, um, it's a totally different ethnic and political structure. That is, you have this small ethnic minority basically dominating the economy and, and controlling it while but they are politically powerless so they're sort of at the mercy of the poor majority and this is like includes you know like indians in east africa lebanese in west africa the chinese throughout southeast asia even the chinese today in burma the whites in south africa you know it's it, it's 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 very pervasive and so i started writing about how democracy is not necessarily a panacea And I got lucky in this weird, tragic sense because after the fall of the Soviet Union, everybody was just, everybody thought free markets and democracy are the answer to everything because, you know, communism had failed. So what's left? Free market democracy. So this is the time of Thomas Friedman. The world is flat, the Lexus and the olive tree. We know we just need globalization to spread democracy everywhere. And it's everything is going to be prosperous and peaceful And I kind of knew that this just wasn't going to be the case because I've spent my whole life studying developing countries where, um, again, I've seen how elections, democracy can actually lead to these demagogues uh, instead of running on solid platforms and and reasonable platforms, running on platforms targeting this hateful minority and saying, look, the Chinese are rich here. Let's confiscate their property. Let's kick them out. Um, So I wrote this book called World on Fire. It actually started off as an article. And it was about how to watch out how democracy and free markets may have worked very well in the United States, but that if you go to countries like Southeast Asia or Latin America or Africa or the Caribbean, where the ethnic structures are very different, you might not get the same results. And what happened is 9-11 happened And suddenly we went from a situation where nobody cared about globalization and, you know, the dangers of ethnic conflict and democracy in developing countries to a situation where everybody was trying to understand the Middle East and ethnic conflict. And why do people hate Americans? And, you know, who are the Sunnis and the Shias and what's going on in Afghanistan? So, um, and I still remember my mom reading this book because just because of the tragic timing of it, it kind of hit the New York Times bestseller list. And for one day, that's all you need. Um, but my mom read the book and she was like, Amy, this is what you're writing about? These minorities that are so successful? Everybody knows that. And I was like, actually, mom, no. You know, it, We know that because we're outsiders. This goes back to our theme. Like, We are from a different culture. We're from a different part of the world. So we're familiar with this. But people in the West don't know it. So that is like my big secret. I always tell my students or people who want to write, find your comparative advantage, right? Like I, I was writing about stuff that I just knew because of my own family, my own background. Um, and it was an insight that I could draw on. And um, so that's, I always say, you know, if you can be writing about stuff that is what you'd want to be talking about at a dinner party anyway, mm-hmm. that's the ticket. That's mm-hmm. the secret to, to happiness and a great career.
0: Yeah, I also think tied to this idea of outsiders, I want to share some thoughts from a review in the New York Times about political tribes. It says that Amy Chua pushes against taboos, and she's just willing to put these ideas out there. Do you think that resonates with how you view yourself, or did that come as a surprise? I took it as a compliment,
1: because, but you're right. It was a little bit surprising because sometimes I read about myself like, wow, she's... um she just loves just stirring up controversy and she's just um, a provocateur. And, you know, I, I, again, I, that's just never how I've really seen myself. Like I was a shy kid and before the whole tiger mom controversy, I just wanted to be liked, you know, like if you look at my, reputation as a professor. I'm like a kind of a diplomat. I'm always like building bridges. I'm not the provocateur. So so it is funny. Um, But I think that is exactly right. It's because I'm an outsider. And I do think I don't back down. Like I, I want to write about these things. Lots of people said, oh, you know, I think you're going to get in trouble for this Tiger Mom book. And I was like, no, I think it's funny. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. This is the you know, overconfident oldest child in me. Um, of course, my mom and my friends were right. Like it blew up, and same with political tribes. I thought this book is so reasonable. I'm just kind of calling it like it is. I'm saying that look, even a lot of groups in the United States, people who think of themselves as non-tribal, like oh, we're just cosmopolitans. These are the coastal elites. Like we're not tribal. It's everybody else. Like we're we believe in just all humans. You know, um, the human race. Um, but actually, being a cosmopolitan, open-minded liberal is actually itself a, a, a very hard and exclusionary group to get into. It's a very judgmental group. Um, it's a group that has views about a lot of people. So so yeah, I do keep finding myself in, in, <laughs> in trouble. Um, and I do think a lot of it is writing from an outsider's perspective and maybe something about my tone. You know, I have a I always think that I'm being funny, and my daughter said, you know, Mom, you have a weird sense of humor. Like, a lot of people don't
0: get it. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. With the explosion of tire, Mom, and, and not to say the other books weren't successful, did you expect to coin a word in popular lexicon? And did you feel this pressure after publishing that book and talking about it incessantly afterwards that you felt a pressure in the way that you continue to raise your daughters. I guess that's kind of two questions.
1: Well, you know, nobody believes me because it just like spread like wildfire, but I was completely shocked about the firestorm. And honestly, so was my publisher. Um, They, you know, I did not have Facebook. I had, my social media was public. I had an email address. I didn't have Twitter. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a like media coaches, um, I was really shell-shocked. And, again, I think it's part of this overconfident thing because I remember my mom, before it came out, said, Amy, you make yourself sound so bad. You know, because I I don't know. I just thought, like, I love unreliable narrators. I thought people are going to get this. And, I'm, honestly, a lot of people do, but also a lot of people don't. Um, and there were friends also who said, wow, you know, this is pretty – this is serious stuff. And I just, I just missed it. After it came out, I don't think I did very well in the media. Like I was very defensive at first. Um, you know, I didn't really, I was like thinking, gosh, if i had only known and had a media coach, you know, I still remember my first appearance on public TV was um, on the Today Show. It was like 6am, a million people. And basically the first question, Meredith Vera said, "So, yes or no, are you a monster? And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. um, And in terms of how it was for my family, um, it was a very ugly three months. One of my daughters was about to apply to college and I was terrified. I didn't know if this controversy and all the hate would have a negative impact. Um, My other daughter, Lulu, was, oh my gosh, we were still just barely over our own trauma, and which is what I—the whole reason I wrote the book—it was about her rebellion and me, you know, almost losing her, and a whole kind of crisis of, of self and me. Um, but we had barely gotten over that. I mean, we were still working it out. She was she was in junior high. She was still having a lot of trouble. We were so I was like, oh my gosh! Now we're in the spotlight. She, you know, everyone's calling me a child abuser. They want to interview her. And it was difficult. Like there were interviews where Sophia agreed to do it, but Lulu didn't want to. And people would say, Whoa, what's going on with that? Well, you know, um, and, uh, now I am definitely still the tiger mom because like when my kids sometimes say, Oh, that was really tough. I was like, Hey, you got a lot of benefits too, you know, because that's always true. Like they, you know, they, they, they got to meet Stephen Colbert and Derek Jeter. I mean, there, there are always positive things that happen. Um, and I think it made them tougher. Um, it did change their lives, all of our lives, utterly. Um, I remember Sophia started at college. The f- first day of her freshman year, there was like a freshman skit. And it, one of it, part of it was making fun of our family. So she's like, oh my gosh. And I remember Lulu, when she got to college, um, she gets a text from her friend. is like, OMG, you're not going to believe what we're looking at in my psych class. And Lulu texts back, and she's like, what? And her friend says, I'm staring at a picture of you. You know, the assigned text was the chapter called Lulu in Battling with a Dyke Mother. You know, and Lulu was like, What class is this? You know, is this like, you know, disturbed children? You know? Um, so it's really changed their lives. Um, and uh, but again, I you know, I I always look at the silver lining. I think it's We've had a lot of benefits too. Um, um, but yeah, it's, I do kind of think of my life in a way as before Tiger Mom and after Tiger Mom.
0: Yeah, and in this fallout of the Tiger Mom, I hate to ask this because I feel like it's a very woman-specific question. But when you open up about your personal life in the media so much, you know, there's a lot of these ideas about can you have it all? How do you balance personal life with professional life and professional life with personal life? Uh, I definitely think there's something... Distinctive about
1: how women um, are treated in the media, you know. Uh, I, I haven't academically analyzed it or tabulated, but I mean, oh my gosh, I just feel like it is aggressive. I remember when the Tiger Mom book came out; so many people said, "Wait, how about like Venus and Serena Williams, Tiger Dad, Tennis Dad?" You know, or all these like coaches that like make their players do you know a hundred sit-ups. Everyone's like, "Whoa, go for it! We love that." You know, um, but like a mom, and it's about violin and math, and suddenly, you know, it's it's a it's completely different. Um, and so for me, I've had to struggle a lot because I am very rash and um, impulsive and my children and my husband and my parents are all much more careful and cautious and private. So lots of times they're like, why did you say that? You didn't have my permission, you know? So I had to kind of, Amy, shut up, think first before you talk. Um, I, again, I, I tend to be an optimist. So I think that everything, nothing bad will happen. And professionally, it was very strange because then suddenly for about six years, I wasn't even known for being a professor, people didn't even know that I wrote about foreign policy. They just thought I was the tiger mom. Like I would go to things, um, and um, you know, once I was on some show talking about foreign policy in Ukraine, and I saw the Twitter I was like, "Why does this woman think she can talk about foreign policy? Who is this?" You know, and again, they just didn't even know that I had this other identity. So I finally um, kind of thought I. I, I I cast it off with political tribes, you know. I remember, like, around 2018, finally being introduced as a, a, an expert in foreign policy. I was like, yay.
0: And that must have been a big moment for you. Just, I, I feel like reconciling identity is sometimes difficult.
1: Yeah, it is. And it was always weird for me teaching, because I'd be, you know, at the law school, teaching contracts and international business transactions. And... Walking in, I always think, gosh, do I have the respect of these students? Like, what do they think, you know? Um, And I've been very lucky. I mean, um, by and large, I mean, you know, I'm always, you know, there's, there are always huge explosive moments of controversy, but generally speaking, my students are the best thing um, uh, about my career. I have been lucky enough to mentor um, you know, Ronan Farrow is my student. I was his mentor and I always get called now about, you know, his book with the same question. How was he in law school? J.D. Vance, author of the famous Hillbilly Elegy, was another one of my students. Um, Nabia Syed, who was assistant general counsel of BuzzFeed. So I've just had this joyous part of my career that really doesn't get spoken about, which is especially after my kids were out of the house. But actually, even while they were small, I almost got along with my students or interacted more naturally with my students than than with my colleagues in some ways. Um, again, the outsider part. Like I just never could talk like a philosopher or a moral philosopher. I was never good at you know talking at faculty meetings. But I really did like helping students, especially students from backgrounds like my own, like public school backgrounds, minorities, women who didn't came from families who where nobody was a lawyer.
0: So that's that's another part of it. What do you find so rewarding about the mentorship of students? What what draws you to it or feels so satisfying about those relationships?
1: It's so personal for me. It's completely autobiographical. I remember being so lost in law school and having no mentor. And honestly, it's generational. Nobody back then talked about mentors. And sometimes I almost think this is the tiger professor in me. I'm like, don't get entitled. You know, I have this line. I'm like, Not everybody is entitled to a mentor. You know, it's it's not like there's a constitutional right to a mentor. Like everything else, you have to earn it, is what I say. Having said that, I love mentoring. And I think the reason is I know exactly how it feels to feel like dirt. Like I remember in law school feeling, I walked into law school feeling pretty smart. I'd done well in college. About a month into it, I'm like, I'm an idiot. I can't can't answer these questions. All these other people have views. I'm like slow-witted and i see that there's something about the law school culture um very very i think particularly for women and women of color uh and, and asian women it's like it's it it's just i don't know if it's something about the way that certain families raise their kids it cultural um again we i just did not grow up in a family of lawyers arguing um and maybe that will change with with new generations but in my generation i was almost always the only asian american in my entire law school section, you know, I'd be like one of two in a class of 150. But so I feel like I know how these students are feeling. And I feel like I know how I can boost their confidence because once they know that that's exactly how I felt and that really doing well and succeeding is built on failure. I really believe that. I feel like I'm a huge proponent of, of rejections being opportunities. You know, I, I always say to my daughters and my students Everybody can handle successes. You know, it's really how you pick yourself up after rejections that strengthen you, you know,
0: and kind of define who you are. So I ask this of every guest that comes on the show, usually at the end, but it feels timely right now. I like to know about what advice sticks with you. And so what's one piece of advice that someone has given you in the past that you've actually found yourself turning around and giving to someone else it, it seems like in the context of mentorship that this might be fitting. Yeah, it's definitely my father.
1: I mean, uh, it's kind of, it sounds a little bit like a cliche, but I totally live by it. And well, it's two parts. First, it's like never don't try something because you're afraid you'll fail so many things that ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me were things that I almost canceled that I almost didn't do. Cause I was too scared. You know, like I almost just canceled going on TV. I was like, I can't do this. Um, I almost canceled, you know, my professorship interviews cause I was just too terrified. Really? Oh my gosh. Well, here's the second piece. Part of that advice. My dad is like, just never give up. Right. Because all you need is one good offer. It doesn't matter how many rejections you get. So this is a true story. When I first applied to be a professor, I went on the teaching market, I had this half-baked article, and I applied to 100 law schools across the country, and I swear to God, I got 100 rejections, (laughs) eight of them on the merits after a full-day interview. And those are the worst, because you feel like it's personal. Like, I just went there and tried, and I remember calling my dad after all these rejections and said, Dad, I know you always wanted me to be a professor, but it's not happening, because I am obviously just not cut out for this, because I have been rejected by all of these schools. And I will never forget my dad's words. He's like, wait, Amy, you got 100 rejections and you want to give up? He thought that was a low number. (laughs) I mean, this is an immigrant. My parents came over with not a penny. They eloped to the United States. They had no heat their first winter in Boston and wore blankets around. They didn't know a soul in this country. My mom could barely speak English. So for them, it's like 100 rejections. But like you just keep on applying so because of that, I like sent out more applications, I got more rejections, and I finally got an offer from the University of Buffalo Law School. And I was so happy. I was going to move there, I was going to commute. And at the last second, Duke Law School unrejected me. They had previously rejected me, and then I think somebody else canceled, and they unrejected me, and that was my first teaching job. So, so really, I always tell my students, remember, all you need is one good offer. It doesn't matter how ugly it is to get there. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how many rejections came before. You just need one good offer.
0: Yeah. And have you experienced that type of rejection in the process of book writing? Do you, do you have editors that take your prose and recreate it? Your publishers? I mean, you've talked about the media.
1: So I, um, when I wrote the Tiger Mom book, we went back to my first the publisher, Doubleday that had published World on Fire and a second book, Day of Empire. And the editor they gave it to at Doubleday had a right of first refusal. That is, she could have bid like $50 on it. You know, she just rejected it flat out. So for Battled Him with the Tiger Mother, it was, it started off with a giant rejection. And I almost said to my agent, I was like, maybe you should just table it. Because if my own editor, I mean, my own publisher doesn't even want it. Like maybe this thing is too weird, you know? And she's like, no, I want to try um and weirdly are ended up being like a seven house auction. So you just never know. Like so you can, you know, you hear all these stories about books that became very successful in the end, being rejected by everybody. Um and that happened to me many times. Um so like even right now I'm writing something that's actually kind of a prequel sequel to Battle Him. Um, but it started off as something else. And you know, I I can't say it's a rejection yet, but like I've had you know, really harsh feedback. Like this reads like a collection of essays. I think it's not in the right shape. And I had felt so good about it. You know, um, you really put yourself out there and you never go out of it. Submitting something that you've written, you just never go out of feeling awful if people don't like it.
0: Now with this sequel, how did you revisit the Tiger Mom material and think of new fresh ways to, to think about it? And can you give us a little bit of a peek into what you're working on?
1: Yeah. Um, so I can just give you hints because I'm not allowed to say more. But last year, um, in August of 2018, I actually had a calamity, a health crisis. You probably know this, but tiger moms don't get sick. <laughs> I have. I was never sick my whole life. I, I didn't even get colds. I would joke that I was immune to the flu. Yeah, yeah, because like I, that's why I would say that's why I get so much work done. I don't even get headaches. But last year, I taught my first contracts class and I didn't feel well, but I, I powered through with Advil. Then the next day, I woke up in excruciating pain. I was rushed to the emergency room. After that, I basically was in the hospital for three weeks and don't remember one of those weeks. And it turns out I had a freak two centimeter hole in my colon and I was going into toxic shock. Like I was, all my organs were failing and I ended up with a very serious operation um, and almost didn't make it. And then I had to have a second operation six months later. And so that's partly what I'm writing about, this coming out of this haze. I was also addicted to opiates by that time because I'd been on morphine and oxycodone for three weeks. And then coming out um, and suddenly my daughter's like worried about the LSAT and I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, I I, I couldn't even, I, cu- I was not allowed to have food or water for three weeks. I was nauseous and in pain for three weeks. And I was like, the freaking LSAT, who cares, you know? Um, and, but she was like, we can't say that. So it's, it, it's wrestling with, you can't suddenly just get all zen, is what my daughter said. Like, you know, so I have to, you have to take responsibility for the, the, my whole fifty years before that, so um, so that's part of where the book came from. This period of actually, it was truly a near death experience, and this apparently happens to a lot of people where you just you you come out with a totally different viewpoint. Some of it was out of just physical weakness. This is so it's funny. The stronger and stronger I get, the more and more back to my old self I got. <laughs> um, you know, but while I was in that super weak, like I was in a wheelchair. Um, I, w- I had a whole med- year of medical leave, so that's that's a secret. But it's also the other half of the book is going back and telling more about my own childhood and how I was raised, actually, and how actually that differed a little bit for how from how I raised my children and why. Why was I so? extreme, and then some juicy stuff about my parents' parents who are not your typical sort of serene Confucian-like grandparents. I mean, I've got a crazy family story.
0: I don't want to say that there are two types of books that you focus on, but there's one that's more core to who you are as a lawyer and a commentator on cultural and international affairs, whereas there's also this more family-focused, autobiographical, novel-esque type. Is your writing process different for these two different types of books? You're so perceptive. So
1: I think there's a common theme because if you go through every one of my books, you see that it reflects the perspective of an outsider. So even this market dominant minority thing, it's like, you know, it's, this is like not what we have in the West, but it's very, very common outside the West. Um, you know, when I wrote uh, The Tiger Mom, that's like, I'm not parenting like everybody else is parenting here you know, I'm parenting like a, an outsider, but you are, so while there are common themes like this book, The Triple Package was also, uh, again, had an outsider perspective, but you're right. The writing process for my academic books is so much more difficult. Like, first of all, I spent like, one for World on Fire. I did seven years of research for Day of Empire, three years of research. And, you know, it took me like five years to write those things. Every day I would get up and write like three pages and I would you know, have research assistants, drafting things. With the Tiger Mom book, my more personal books, and this new one that I'm writing, it is like stream of consciousness. Literally, I go on walks with my dogs or myself, and I talk to myself in my head, and I just, like, I type into my phone as I'm walking. Mm-hmm. But I, I type garbled notes, and then I copy-paste it into a word. Per- and it's it's very, very narrative. It's, like, literally t- like I'm talking to a friend. And I find it much more readable. It's much more fun. It's much more crazy. It's much less logical. So sometimes editors will start to edit it. And then I, they, well, you know what? Let's not meddle with this because it really is like talking. And um, and I, so I kind of like that much better, but it's its own kind of pressure because sometimes I'm like, okay, now you have to go into this mentality, go walking, let the thoughts
0: come. And sometimes they just won't, you know? <laughs> Interesting. When you started to get in the process of writing Political Tribes, how did you start? You were writing off the PR of Tiger Mom, and you'd attach yourself to this identity, and you said you started to build this new identity around 2018, but writing Political Tribes, you know, writing that book came many years before that, so... So what was the impetus for Political Tribes?
1: Well, this is another fascinating story. I started this book intending for Political Tribes to be a purely foreign policy book. And it was all about, I'm going to get back to who I am, the foreign policy expert. So I was writing about how under certain conditions, um, democracy can give rise to you know demagogic figures who basically generate votes by tapping into social resentments and, and also deep kind of racially inflicted feelings And I remember teaching international business transactions, and I was doing my usual spiel, which I'd given for 10 years, which is we get our foreign policy wrong all the time because we have a totally different dynamic in America than developing countries. In developing countries, you know, you often will see demagogues rising, sweeping to power on a populist platform, you know, uh, tapping into deep social resentments and, and, you know, racially inflicted anger. And then I stopped and finally, one student raised her hand and and said what everybody else was thinking, which is, Professor Chua, that sounds just like what happened in the United States, because that was happened to be three months after the November 2016 election. And I suddenly realized, oh my gosh. That 's right, uh, the, you know what I was talking about was Venezuela, actually, and here I was basically describing what had just happened in the United States. so in three months, I scrambled, I redid the book, and part of the book now, really half of it, is saying that for the first time in u s history, we are starting to exhibit some of the destructive political dynamics that historically have been much more typical of developing countries, you know again, the rise of uh, ethno nationalist movements. Um, the erosion of trust in our institutions and electoral outcomes lurches towards authoritarianism, just populism, and I guess, worst of all, the descent of democracy into an engine of, of political tribalism. And I kind of catalog the reasons why the U.S. is now experiencing these dynamics um, when for so long, and we've always had trouble, but we are experiencing a kind of dynamic that I think is much more typical of, of developing countries.
0: Right. You explain the current dynamics, but you also make some future predictions. Would you consider the book a success if you accurately capture the changing of tides? I do.
1: I do. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I I think, you know, a lot of people have read the book and said, wow, this really explains what's going on in our country. Um, some of the factors uh, are, one, you know, it used to be just um, for 200 years, this country was dominated economically and politically by a white majority. I mean obviously that's the term white is a is a social construct. It's been a moving target. Lots of groups weren't considered white when they first got here, but that's the basic dynamic. And when you have one group that is so overwhelmingly dominant, it can do lots of terrible things, you know, slavery, uh, oppression. But It can also be more generous. You know, um, for example, white Protestants basically voluntarily opened up the Ivy League schools in the 60s because they kind of felt like it was the right thing to do. Right now, it's totally different. Right now, for the first time in U.S. history, whites are on the verge of losing their majority status. And the result is that every group in America today feels threatened. And this is new. It's not just minorities who feel threatened. Whites feel threatened. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, white extinction. It's not just um, religious minorities who feel threatened. You know, it's not just Jews and, and Muslims and Hindus. Christians feel threatened. You hear this in the political dialogue. Oh my gosh, you know, we're losing our Christian identity. You know, with President Trump in the White House, women feel threatened. With the Me Too movement, men feel threatened. Gays, Latinos, Asians, it's a moment where every group feels threatened. And that's part of what's happening because it's when groups feel threatened that they retreat into tribalism, that they kind of uh, close ranks and become more insular and more, more us versus them. So that's, that's part of it. The other thing I, I noticed is I think for the first time in our history, we're developing our own idiosyncratic version of a market dominant minority of a resented minority that's viewed by the disadvantaged majority as controlling the levers of power from afar. It's different than developing countries because it's not an ethnic group, but I, I, I think this group is what we call coastal elites. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. And not just on the coast, but you new know, people in Chicago, just, just kind of cosmopolitan okay. elites.
0: Yeah. Who did you draw the most advice from while drafting political tribes? Advice? Or feedback, who did you bounce ideas off of? I am pretty uh, disciplined and rigorous. So I had 30
1: research assistants over three years doing, you know, I had, um, and for example, when I wrote a chapter on Libya, which ended up being excised, I worked with a Libyan-American student Um, from my chapter on Afghanistan. I worked from a woman who grew up in, you know, Afghanistan. And I always run it by, you know, if I quote or criticize other academics, I always send a draft to them in advance. And then I share drafts with colleagues that I trust. My husband is my main editor and critic. And I also do massive um, source checking. Like I I put together a team and I say, look, each one of these student groups will, you know, like the student will get five pages, fact check every single sentence um, and, you know, circle anything that's remotely inaccurate.
0: That's amazing. You know, what is so intriguing to me, I think, in this interview is that you're this balance of opposites. <laughs> if, if, I think, you know, people say that, you know, or you'd like to point yourself as an outsider, but I think you, you play so sort of deeply into your family and your personal life, but you also have such richness and nuance to your professional life as well. And it's this balance of the two. But, you know, for you, when you thinking about the footprint that you leave on the world, like what do you, how do you want people to think of?
1: of you. Wow. That's a great question. And thank you for your nice words. Um, you know, I am always immersed in controversy and for a long time, I just felt bad about that after Tiger Mom. I was like, wait, I have to rescue my reputation. And this is, they're going to see this on the internet and I would sink into these depressions. How can I, cause you know, with the internet, you can't control it. It's out there, but I've started to see, you know, maybe like my father, who's kind of like my, he's kind of like my hero. My father is actually a huge rebel. So there are so many contradictions, because on the one hand, he's this Chinese immigrant patriarch, you know, high expectations, really strict. But on the other hand, he broke from his own family, left Asia. He eloped with my mother to the United States. They didn't know anybody here. And he was always this rebellious character. You know, he didn't listen to anybody. He saw himself as like Davy Crockett, you know, um, I do, even now that I'm very much part of the mainstream, I teach at Yale Law School, I still really quintessentially feel like an outsider. I really do. I, I just, um, I constantly feel like, wow, you know, people are upset at me for something I've said. I'm, I'm just not in the majority for various reasons, you know? So, and I think I've come to see that it's really my mom, this is, I, I talked a lot about my dad, but my mom's big insight is she's the one that taught me that being an outsider can be a source of strength you know, it can be a source of pride. It can be a source of insight. So I'm, you know, this is not an exact answer to your question, but I, I feel like I've kind of come come to terms with the fact that I'm this, you know, always going to be an outsider at some level. Um, but in a way America's filled with outsiders. That's the beauty of this country. And, um, you know, just kind of roll with the
0: punches. Yeah. Rolling with the punches, Amy, thank you so much for the time. You explored the space of the fallout of your books and the new opportunities that are on the horizon. And I'm really happy that we had the chance to capture all of that. So thank you again. Thank you so much for doing this. I have to tell you, I've never had
1: an interview like this. I'm always asked the same old questions. This was so much fun.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I mean, this was really great to do. like what you just heard hit subscribe and show us some love we always love hearing reviews and getting messages from you all at ta.4.ta.china at gmail.com we've also been getting more active on twitter and providing some cool supporting content that elevates what you already hear on the show our twitter handle is at ta for ta so make sure to check that out Ta for Ta, Women's Success, China, is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks again to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing, Jason McRonald for editing, and Jamie Luay for marketing. And until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.